All right, Jesse, I'm still absolutely fuming about last week's elder care predators. What's the story this time around? A horrific crime against a loved one is slowly revealed, eventually leading to a very public arrest for the evildoer. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about money, deception, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Once again, you guys outdid yourself. Thank you so much for the kind words this week. Yeah, those reviews were something else. They were awesome. So great. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support and all the goodies that you're going to get. Speaking of Patreon, as always, we are so honored to welcome a bunch of new patrons. We want to thank and give a shout out to Emma M., Jennifer D., and Cam. Veronica M., Kayla C., and Ashley A., Kelly M, Helen L, and Megan G. And finally, Terry R and Megan B. Y'all are the best. And I've got a, a really chilling tale for you today about how looks can be deceiving and how sometimes the people we trust most might be the ones who actually have it in for us. Ugh, I hate these stories. I know, this is a hard <laughs> one. Uh, so let's get going. New year, new life is what Julie Keown thought as she and her husband James packed up their Kansas City, Missouri home in January of 2004. Though she was sad to leave behind friends and family, she knew it wasn't maybe forever. After all, James had been accepted into Harvard University's MBA program. Wow. And had been offered a full scholarship. Whoa. I mean, how many do they offer of those a year? Very, very few. So wow. especially for something like the business school, I would imagine. I'm sure it's a little different with undergrad. But this is clearly an opportunity of a lifetime. Yeah. Luckily, both the company that Julie worked for, a medical tech company, and James, who worked for a educational nonprofit called The Learning Exchange, would let the couple telecommute while they were in Massachusetts. So Julie hoped maybe with James boasting a new degree and an elevated position within his company, it would finally be time to have a baby. Julie was more than ready to start building their family. They had been married for almost eight years and her baby nephew was the absolute light of her life. She couldn't think of a better person to raise her kids with than James. The future, she decided, looked very bright indeed. No one would have predicted that in less than eight short months, Julie would be lying in a Massachusetts hospital, and unfortunately not for delivering a baby like she had hoped, but in a coma, fighting for her life. Oh my God. Even more unbelievable would be the person who was eventually suspected of trying to kill her and the shocking secrets he kept. 
like I said, this is just another one that makes you think, how well can you ever actually know someone? So thank you very much to listener Becky WF for this episode's suggestion. It is a relatively hometown episode for Becky. And I had never heard of this case. So I really appreciate Becky bringing it to my attention. And we'll get into the part later that she wrote to me about when it occurs in the tale. So let's jump off by talking about Julie. Julie Oldag was born on May 16th, 1973 and raised in Plattsburgh, Missouri, which is a small Midwestern farming community about 35 miles north of Kansas City. She had such a classic Midwestern Americana upbringing. Her parents were salt-of-the-earth soybean farmers, and she and her brother Chad grew up working and playing on the farm. It really struck me a lot because it feels very similar to how I grew up. They went to really sweet community events all summer long. They would go to the county fair, ice cream socials, and my personal favorite, 4-H competitions. Oh my God, of course. <laughs> I know. You guys, I think I've mentioned it before, but I was in 4-H from kindergarten until my senior year. So yeah, the words that came up over and over again in descriptions of Julie were wholesome, kind, and compassionate. It was her natural empathy and desire to help those in need that led her to pursue a career in nursing. She went to William Jewell College, which is a small private Baptist school, after high school, and she earned her nursing degree. William Jewell College was also where Julie met her future husband, James Keown, on a blind date. Friends had set them up with the hunch that the couple might just complement one another. They're kind of opposites. Okay. And they were totally correct. James was the perfect, outgoing, life-of-the-party yin to Julie's sweet, down-to-earth, tender-hearted yang. So James was very ambitious. That's the one word everybody used to describe him. He was deeply personable, super extroverted, and charming as all get out. He was the type of guy you would 100% notice when he walked into a room, and not just because he had pretty, pretty bright red hair. He looks like, this is going to be a classic Jesse meandering description. He looks like a grown-up alfalfa mixed with Mitchell Pritchett from Modern Family, and then like a dash of that ginger kid making the weird sour face in that famous meme. Oh, my God. That was the most <laughs> Frankenstein description of as someone I've ever heard in my entire life. As far as Julie goes, again, this is such a weird description, but it's it's totally accurate. She looks as if Ali Sheedy, who played kind of like the misfit role in The Breakfast Club, as if that actress played Molly Ringwald's character. Very preppy, sweet, well-dressed, well-groomed, but with the dark hair and the dark eyes. They made a pretty cute couple, and the relationship seemed destined for marriage early on. James was almost exactly one year younger than Julie. Their birthdays were one day and one year apart. So she Weird. Was, isn't that funny? She's yeah. May 16th of 1973, and he is May 17th of 1974. Whoa. Yeah. So he was born in Jefferson City, the capital of Missouri. And James Sr., his father, who went by Jim, had been a well-respected lobbyist. And the family was very comfortable if I think they were probably like upper middle class, but like very much verging on wealthy, especially in that area. 
Unfortunately, Jim passed away while James was in his teens, leaving behind wife Betty and their five children. James had four brothers and sisters. Whoa. A defining characteristic of James was his drive to succeed. People who went to high school with him said he was completely driven and from a very early age, he set himself apart. He used to show up every day for high school with a briefcase and a copy of the New York Times. Okay. I feel like there's some character in a Wes Anderson film who is just like that. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a type. It's definitely a type. Did he also wear like a polka dot tie? I don't know. Maybe pinstripes. <laughs> So he also did a lot of extracurriculars. He wasn't athletic, but other than that, he did pretty much every other club. He did student council, chess club, National Honor Society, Harvard Model Congress team. Okay. And he also helped, I guess, he. I think he was one of the founders for a club on campus that taught high school students how to run their own businesses. That's cool. James himself had been working since he was 12 years old when he snagged a part-time job at a local radio station and began to dream of an on-air career. Despite his lack of athletic ability, which generally around this time would create the more popular kids, I would imagine, he was incredibly well-liked. So the sources that I'm using today are a book called Lie After Lie by Laura Bricker, as well as an episode from The Perfect Murder, season one, episode six from 2014. So Laura Bricker wrote that whenever a group gathered, James could be found in the center, talking, engaging those around him, almost like a younger version of the politicians he encountered when he went to the state house with his father. He had the ability to fit into whatever social situation he was in at the time. Hmm. Distrust. Dangerous. Andy has I'm not sold face on. That's what's going on here. <laughs> I do. I think he's trouble. Trouble. I personally was thinking, well, that is such a great life skill. That he can just be a social chameleon and get along with everyone. And you see politician written all over it. I do. And that's scary to me. <laughs> you, you're just leaving it at that? Yes. Yeah. Because I don't know what's going to happen yet. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah. In 1992, James graduated from high school with a superlative, most likely to succeed. Hmm. James jumped right into radio work while he was in college, earning a weekend DJ spot at Kansas City's KCMO. The program director at the time said, you could not help but like him when you first met him. He had a real passion for radio. You could tell he just had it all together. James was so well-liked and regarded in that radio station that after only a year or so later, he was offered a full-time position, one that apparently graduates that were hoping to get into radio would have absolutely killed for. So he decided to put his degree on hold and jump headlong into broadcasting. So random. I feel like that's such a weird choice tangent. for Mr. New York Times, the briefcase. Yes, 100%. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like a kid bringing in the New York Times briefcase business and then being like wanting to do radio. Well, I think what he wanted to be is kind of like a Rush Limbaugh style political commentator on radio. He was less doing like the shock jock morning DJ thing and more trying to be a thought leader, I think. That's where he, he ends up going towards. So that was what his ambitions were at this time. And his DJ name, which I don't know where he got this from James Keown, was J.P. O'Neill. 
Also, Jesse Prey. Yeah, Jesse Bray O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> Julie and James were married directly after Julie graduated from college and began her nursing career. The couple lived in Chicago for a little bit, where James allegedly went big time by working for ESPN, but eventually returned to Kansas City, saying that they wanted to be closer to family. James was welcomed back at KCMO, where everyone noticed that he must have done pretty darn well at ESPN because he had a sparkling new BMW and some new flashy designer suits. The young couple thrived in Kansas City. They had a lot of friends. They socialized often. All of the people in their circle really did believe that James and Julie were the perfect couple. Julie was James's number one fan and biggest cheerleader. Well, James literally never had anything but glowing things to say about his wife. And he always seemed to dote upon her. It's one of those things like obviously in the show, our married couples don't usually fare that well. Yeah, from the get-go even necessarily. Yeah, exactly. And this was one of those things that even after some of the events are revealed, even then people are like, yeah, they seem totally in love. James was all about Julie. He never said a bad word about her. He was always so kind and solicitous to her. If there was any weirdness, it was that he seemed very possessive of her. He seemed like he wanted to do things with her all the time, that he wanted to know where she was going and who she was going to be with. And that he definitely couched that in because I love you so much, but that's also a very big red flag. And the only thing that Julie's mother would later say, the only thing that she remembered Julie ever complaining about as far as James went, was that he just had a really hard time staying employed and staying happy. The way Julie always put it was that it wasn't like he was getting fired or anything. It was more that he had these like big ambitions and the positions he was being offered or the radio gigs he was getting were not fulfilling that ambition. So he kept hopping from station to station. He tried to get into marketing and she really just wanted him to settle into something and grow from there because it was kind of taking a toll on their lives and their finances to have him always be switching jobs. Julie herself was very satisfied with her work as a nurse in the intensive care unit. She had an upbeat, positive, and professional attitude that led to her reputation as being an incredible nurse to work with, and she was requested pretty much constantly by the other nurses and doctors that she worked with. It was like the person that you wanted to be on your shift, like, oh, thank God, I know that I'm in good hands when I'm with this person. Even when she decided to start working for Cerner Corporate, it's basically a at least how it was described to me in the book. And I looked it up online too. It's like IT solutions for medical companies. And I think that they needed nurses and medical professionals on staff to help them advise the best way to assist the medical profession. Okay, cool. So she started doing that because it was going to make her a lot more money. But even when she started doing that as a nine to five, Monday through Friday, she would still pick up a 12 hour shift in the ICU on the weekends because she was so passionate about patient care. Julie was relieved when James seemed to settle into a new role in marketing at the Learning Exchange. James was hired in May of 2002 and approached the CEO about continuing his education with an MBA to further assist the company. The CEO, Tammy Blossom, agreed to keep James employed while he went back to school, but there was very little wiggle room regarding budget because, you know, a lot of companies will pay for their employees to go back to school. This was a nonprofit. So she's like, I absolutely think you getting an MBA could be very helpful, but we don't have the funds to send you to an MBA program. 
And he was like, no problem. I'm going to get a scholarship. And he went out and he did it. Remarkable. (laughs) Yes. And she was really impressed too because she herself had gotten an advanced degree from Columbia. So she knew how hard it is to get into an Ivy League, especially an MBA program at Harvard, which is one of the most prestigious, if not the most prestigious MBA program in the United States. Yeah. Within days, a letter from the admissions office arrived at Tammy Blossom's desk to confirm James's acceptance, as well as a list of courses that James or JP, as he went by, that would benefit the learning exchange. They kind of went over the curriculum together and figured out which concentration he should be in in order to best serve the company later on. Julie was over the moon about James's acceptance at Harvard, as I feel like any supportive partner would be. Yes. How jazzed would you be if yourself or your partner got into such an incredible program? It's truly remarkable. These couples that are like this, I'm always like, how is, does this go bad? <laughs> I know. They seem both like they're so wonderful. It's true. And that's why I think that this really does come as a shock to a lot of people when what happens happens. Julie made arrangements with her company to work remotely. The couple rented a duplex in Waltham, Massachusetts, and in late January, they moved across the country. Unfortunately, soon after, I think it was like a couple months after they got settled in Waltham, Julie started getting really, really sick. She became disoriented, foggy, and she was sick to her stomach almost constantly. After a couple months of misery, Julie consulted several doctors to get to the bottom of her ailment, and it was discovered that she had a mild form of a kidney disease. Oh, no. I know. I'm not even going to try to pronounce this one, guys. It's it's something called focal segmented glomerul sclerosis. (laughs) Glomerul sclerosis. Yeah. You can write in and be like, you don't know what you're talking about, but I'm not a doctor. I'm just a lady that talks murder for a living. So the thing is, is that yes, she had this and this made a lot of sense because apparently she had been hospitalized when she was a little girl for some kidney issues. So it made sense that this existed, but they didn't understand why it was affecting her so negatively. This was a very mild pre-existing condition. It should absolutely have not accounted for the serious level of kidney decline that she was experiencing by the summer of 2004. By August, Julie was put on high doses of prednisone and another special uh, pharmaceutical designed to combat nausea. And she went back home to Missouri for a visit. I think it was for a couple of weeks. And they said that she kind of bounced back towards the end of that visit. But then as soon as she got back in Waltham, she was sick all over again. So the doctors at that point told her that her kidneys were so scarred that she would have to go on dialysis and most likely require a kidney transplant. I was going to ask if I didn't even know if that is a thing. Yeah. And this was still very mysterious because her condition was really, it was like enough that she would have like weird wonky blood work. That's what the doctor said. Like this makes sense. Some of your levels make sense given that you have this underlying condition, but no one with this condition gets this bad. This is such an extreme response that we're kind of befuddled by it. And it was really, really devastating to Julie because when they had moved to Waltham, they had decided that it was the perfect time to start a family, which is something she'd wanted to do for a really long time. Yeah. 
It's such a cute area too. That's where Moody Street is, I think, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. And it's it's become like so cute in the last like 20 years. Yeah. So this was really a hard, hard time for her because of her sickness. She was having a hard time working. She also lived in this new area, but she wasn't getting out and meeting people at all because she works from home when she's able. And then a lot of the time she felt so sick that she didn't really feel up to trying to go out and socialize with new people. It's a pretty lonely time for her. And she's also desperate to figure out what's going on with herself, obviously, but also to figure out if this was going to ruin her chances of having a child. And she refused to give up on her dreams. She sought out specialists. She did a ton of internet research. She looked up kidney treatments. And she also saw an OB to determine just how dangerous it would be to get pregnant while she was still recovering. Okay. Which at that point they said, you're definitely going to have a high-risk pregnancy, but it's not undoable. And how old is she at the time? She's 30, 31. Okay. Yeah. So she turned 31 in May while she was in Waltham. She spoke often to her friends, many of whom were also medical professionals, and she was optimistic about her recovery, though she seemed just physically drained a lot of the time. Throughout it all, though, she said that James had been by her side. He catered to her. He always made sure she took her various medicines. He kept her hydrated. He would encourage her to down plenty of Gatorade for the electrolytes, which was recommended by her doctors. Julie and her friends and family felt fortunate that she was in good hands with both her husband and the excellent Boston-based doctors. So it was because of these reasons and because she seemed so upbeat and optimistic that everyone was shocked when she took a severe turn for the worse. On the afternoon of August 20th, 2004, James brought Julie to the emergency room. Her speech was slurred. What? And she was too dizzy to walk. So she saw a guy called Dr. Rankins, and she explained to him when she could talk that she had a kidney condition. When Julie stabilized, they didn't know what had caused the episode, but she seemed okay, and there was no reason to keep her there. So they did discharge her, but Dr. Rankins called her the following week to see if she was feeling better because he was concerned about her just leaving and them never really pinpointing what had caused the episode. Yeah. I feel like any good physician would follow up on that. Absolutely. And she said she was still feeling sick. Not bad enough to come in, but just not great. And so he said, you need to go see your primary care physician and ask them to order all of this blood work and if necessary, come back. But he was, I believe, an emergency room doctor and not a specialist. So she had her own doctors that specialize in what was going on with her kidneys. So he was like, please see your normal doctor and, and make sure you follow up about this. And Julie promised that she would. Unfortunately, only a week after that phone call on September 5th of Labor Day weekend, Julie and James were back in the hospital. So when they came in on September 5th, it was really, really bad. It was worse than the first time. James explained that on Friday, Julie had seemed fine. She had gone for a walk and then the couple even went out to dinner, which they rarely did anymore because she was always feeling so terribly. But on Saturday, Julie had felt terrible. She was so tired that she couldn't get out of bed. So James said that he went out twice to get things to bring to her. The first time he went to Shaw's supermarket 
to get donuts. And then a later event, he went and got Sprite because she wanted something to try to help settle her stomach. A few hours later, Julie was unable to walk. He said that he needed to help her get to the bathroom, but she still didn't want to go to the hospital. She just said she needed to get some rest. So he did. He tucked her back in and let her sleep. But around 8.30 at night, he came to the bedroom and realized she wasn't there. So where did she go? So he ended up like running around the house. It's a duplex, so it's not super large. Looking for her, she's nowhere to be found. And finally he goes outside and he found her completely disoriented and wandering around the neighborhood. Whoa. So that was terrifying. So he again tried to just get her tucked into bed, but she was starting to become unresponsive. Yeah. I mean, this isn't normal. This is not normal. She should have gone back to the hospital a lot sooner than this. Is that normal for like, I don't know a lot about kidney? As far as I know, not a normal response. It's a very bizarre set of side effects for what is considered a very mild kidney condition. At least her form of it was a mild condition. I don't want to I don't want to say for people who have it after I completely butchered the pronunciation that it's like, it's totally mild. But somebody's like, are you kidding me, lady? You don't know what it's like. But the form she had was apparently very mild. Okay. When she started to become in and out of consciousness and like kind of passing out and becoming unresponsive, that was when James said, oh, to hell with it. You need to go to the hospital and called an ambulance. And thank goodness he finally did because when they arrived at the hospital, Julie's organs were starting to fail and she soon fell into a coma. Whoa. I can't say that it happened fast. It seemed like obviously she'd been suffering for months, but when it did happen this time, it happened very fast. Did she end up ever doing the blood work with her GP? I don't know because that was the account of the doctor. So Dr. Rankins gave the previous account to the police and to Laura Bricker or Laura Bricker got it from the police report, one or the other. But that was his account. So he doesn't know whether she followed up with the blood work. So James called Julie's parents who immediately jumped on a flight from Missouri to Boston. Meanwhile, the hospital staff was doing everything in their power to pinpoint what was causing Julie's organ failure. I imagine this is a very Dr. House way where they have somebody who is struggling, who is near death, and they have not been able to figure out why. And they're like doing every test. They're running every possible thing to figure out what it is so that they can save her. And Boston has no shortage of amazing hospitals and doctors as well. They really do. I mean, I have to say like New York is the gets a lot of the credit for being, you know, such a fantastic East Coast city. But because of all of the incredible universities and educational institutions in the Boston area, the hospitals are phenomenal. Yeah, they really are. There's some incredible doctors and they really were because well-running tests and they tested for everything. And we never hear this on this show. She's still alive, and the doctors made a stunning discovery. Julie tested positive for ethylene glycol, the deadly poisonous compound found in antifreeze. This is the type of thing that usually the doctors find out later in the autopsy. Whoa. And even we've talked about this in a previous case. I don't want to give too much away about that previous case, but they didn't even find out in the autopsy. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the fact that she's still alive and they already know that she was poisoned or at least somehow ethylene glycol got in her system. 
Yeah. So as is protocol, the police were immediately notified and the investigation began because they called right from the hospital and they said, we've got an ethylene glycol poisoning. It's an antifreeze poisoning. You need to get over here right now. She's still alive for now, but this is an attempted murder case. Yes. Yes. So James told the police and his in-laws that he had absolutely no idea how Julie had gotten antifreeze in her system. They were also concerned about James at that point because the couple ate everything together. So they were like, did they both somehow ingest this? But James seemed fine. And then when they ran tests on him, he had no antifreeze in his system. It's just a little sketchy because they both worked from home. Like I said, Julie had yet to make any real friends. So she never really went out, especially because she was always ill. So how would this poison get in her system? There's only one fucking way. There's only one way. Well, the cops, of course, first needed to determine that it wasn't accidental or intentional by her own hand. Like suicidal. Exactly. Because James wasn't sick and he didn't have it in his system, and it's very hard to just accidentally drink antifreeze by yourself, they could pretty much rule out accidental right away. And this is also happening over like months and months of time. It's not like she just drank it one time. Yes. And at this point, they're not going to know unless she passes away and does an autopsy to see how long she's been poisoned. They know at least it's happened this one time. It's currently in her bloodstream. But she has been sick for a while, and that would make a lot more sense because being disoriented, having these stomach pains, these issues is way more in line with antifreeze poisoning than it is with her mild kidney condition. Yeah, or some disease that they don't know yet. (laughs) Exactly. So next, they had to eliminate the possibility that she had poisoned herself on purpose to either end her life or because she had Munchausen. And now when we talk about Munchausen, we usually talk about Munchausen by proxy, which is where generally it's usually sadly mothers or caretakers who are women doing it to their children, stereotypically. And that's when they make somebody that they are caring for ill to get attention. Just straight up Munchausen is when they make themselves ill for attention. So they have to make sure that that wasn't a part of it. But the thing is, is that everyone said that Julie was neither depressed nor suicidal. Even though she was suffering from this illness. She was very upbeat about it. She was still consulting OBs about her chances of getting pregnant and what it would mean with limited kidney function to have a baby. She was clearly looking towards the future. Yeah. Police would later search her emails too. And there wasn't a single search about suicide or suicide by poisoning or anything. It was just all about how she can get better and how she can get pregnant. As far as the Munchausen thing went, James had reported that he didn't take Julie to the emergency room earlier on Saturday because she had refused to go. She said she didn't want to make a fuss. She was just tired. She needed to sleep. This is the opposite of how somebody with Munchausen would behave because clearly they're doing it for attention. Yes. So they're like, I just don't believe that she would do it to herself. She's a nurse. So if she really wanted to kill herself, I feel like she would know more efficient and less painful ways to do it. Yes. Are they holding him in custody right now or is he just like at the hospital waiting room? He's just not leaving. So of course there's suspicion on him. He's the only one who's been around her. And statistically, it's always the husband. But he seemed totally natural and normal. And he was talking to the cops like he was super concerned and he had no idea how this happened. And he was really upset. He was by her bedside. He made no moves to be sketchy or leave at all. 
And he was there with his in-laws, her parents, and her parents seemed to really get along with him. There was nothing that they could do at this point to hold him because there's no proof or evidence that he did anything. There's just poison in her system. But even though it seems unlikely that she did it herself, it's still possible. You can't arrest somebody when you don't know what happened. Yeah, and she's still alive. And she's still alive at this point. Nonetheless, they do a serious background check at this point to see if he had any prior convictions or there was any domestic abuse allegations. But there was nothing. His He was clean as a whistle, really. Squeaky clean. Squeaky clean. The police spoke to Julie's parents, who were completely gobsmacked about this. They were shocked that somebody had poisoned their daughter. She didn't have an enemy in the world. She barely knew anyone in Massachusetts. And they really didn't immediately think that it was James. They just, her mother especially could not imagine, her mother's name is Nancy, that he would do that to her because the marriage had seemed like, to them at least, such a happy one. She said that they were both very supportive and respectful of each other. Julie had confided in her mother that she had been really upset and worried that her illness would prevent her from having children or even being able to officially hold down a job because she was so ill. And James had promised to take care of her. He promised to help her achieve these goals no matter what. And Nancy and Jack, Julie's parents, really respected that she had such a loyal partner in her corner. So Nancy did say, however, that Julie seemed to bounce back a little bit when she came to visit. So that's a little sketchy that she is not feeling well at home, but then she goes to visit her parents by herself. And by the end of that visit, she's feeling better. Yeah, because she's not being poisoned. Because she's not being actively poisoned. Could you imagine trying to like be a mom while you're being actively poisoned? No, I cannot. Sounds exhausting. Being a mom sounds exhausting and I'm healthy. Luckily, no one's trying to poison me. They were stunned about the poisoning. Very, very vehemently denied that their daughter was trying to kill herself. Like I said earlier, she was a nurse, they pointed out. She would definitely be aware of other ways to do it. They were also like, our daughter goes after what she wants. If she wanted to kill herself, she would do it. She would find a way. She wouldn't just suffer for months on end until it finally did her in. That's just, it was an antithesis to her personality. It was an antithesis to even if she wanted to end her own life, she would have found a different way. So Jack, Julie's dad at this point said bluntly to the investigators, my son-in-law hasn't given me any reason ever that he would do it, but he's the only one I can think of. Jack did mention that James was overprotective which goes back to the whole never letting her out of his sight. But it had always been perceived as because he cared about her and he loved her so much, which is, I think, an attitude that a lot of people felt like about certain controlling behaviors before we knew better. Yeah. But it's just so sweet. He just wants to be around her all the time. He loves her so much. He's going to drop her off and pick her up at things because he's being helpful, not controlling. But if he's trying to be controlling, I don't understand, like, why. I don't know. There's a lot of, like, psychological things I'm very confused on in regards to him. Yeah, it's confusing, too, because all of – I mean, maybe it's because Julie didn't seem to find it controlling. 
that she didn't have a problem with it. It was more of what other people noticed. She would joke, oh, I had to break free because James wanted to like hang out tonight. She would make some jokes about it. Oh, he just loves hanging out with me. But maybe because she didn't seem to have a problem with it, other people didn't. Yeah, I just mean like for him too. Why are you being so controlling of someone that you don't want to live? That's the whole thing. I mean, this case really boggles my mind. And when we get to the end of it, I have some questions and some discussion points for you and I because there was a lot that confused me about this. I'm like, what? My head's spinning right now. Yeah. But neither of Julie's parents could really come up with any possible motivation that he would have to kill their daughter. They said that they both made decent salaries and as a result of the scholarship to Harvard and the fact that he was still getting a good salary from the learning exchange, Julie told her parents and several friends that it was awesome. She was actually putting her $1,500 a month check directly into savings because he was managing to pay all of their expenses just by himself. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So he's like, I don't think that they have money problems because this is what Julie told me. She said everything's going really well. He did say, though, I think my biggest red flag about this whole scenario, other than rationally James is the only one who could have poisoned her, is that his excuse to why she could have gotten antifreeze in her system was so bizarre. So first Jack told the officers what James had told him. And then James told pretty much the same story to them. And it's altogether kind of unbelievable. He said that the prednisone was making Julie loopy and disoriented. That was his belief. That's what he said. She told him that like she had to take this drug for her kidneys, but it was just really making her confused out of it. Like you said, there's like dementia-like qualities to what's going on. And prednisone's a steroid, very commonly used. It does not do that. In fact, I had to go on it recently because of that hair dye thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a, like a chemical burn style allergic reaction to some hair dye on the back of my ears were just blistering pus buckets and I had to go on prednisone for it. And in fact, it does the opposite. It makes you more alert. It makes you yeah. more with it. In fact, my doctor told me to take it as early in the morning as possible because some people have trouble sleeping on it because it wakes you up so much and it makes yeah. you want to perform. It gives you energy. First of all, unlikely that these episodes were caused by prednisone. That's what he was claiming. But he said she's on this medication and it's making her loopy. And she went out, like I said, in the neighborhood and she was wandering around. And he thinks, well, just maybe one of our neighbors had been changing the antifreeze solution out of their radiator and put it in a jar or some sort of receptacle. And in her confusion, She drank it. Sure. His speculation. Which he then said out loud. (laughs) That he said out loud that we are going to go forward calling the raccoon theory is that she pawed through her neighbor's trash until she found a receptacle of antifreeze solution and drank it. The raccoon theory. I have to admit, I didn't come up with that one. I was, I literally was going to give you an award if you did. <laughs> no, we all know where the awards need to come from in this podcast. And that is Nathaniel Whittemore. I was explaining this to him and he was like, okay, first of all, don't murder. But if you're going to murder, when they ask you, well, how do you think the antifreeze got in your wife's system? You say, I have no idea. 
I don't even know. It blows my mind. I have no idea. You don't say, well, maybe, maybe when she was wandering around the neighborhood, she decided to paw through some trash, find some old antifreeze in some sort of random receptacle and drank it all before I could find her. It would have just been that much more amazing if he said, well, haven't you heard of the raccoon theory? <laughs> raccoon syndrome? Raccoon syndrome. You know, when prednisone makes you into a scavenging animal that needs to eat and drink from the trash. That's cute, but you want to stay away from. Ridiculous. Wow. Wow. The police, though, they did their due diligence. They followed up. They canvassed the whole neighborhood. Anywhere where he said that she might have walked, anywhere that was within walking distance, just to check out the possibility that no one had dumped antifreeze anywhere near or around their trash or garages at that point, and no one had. I mean, what are you supposed to do, though, as the cops? Because this guy is like, everyone has no suspicion of him. So they are doing their job by looking, but it's like facepalm at the same time. Well, I think also everyone wants there to be a better excuse. Everyone wants to find out that it's not intentional, that it's not murder. You want to believe in the goodness of people. So it's not a detective's job always to make sure the bad guys get caught after it's sure that it's a homicide it is, of course, but it's also to investigate to make sure that some guy doesn't go to jail because it was truly an accident. And also, if he did do it, you have to prove that you look down every avenue because they will bust you wide open in court with saying you didn't even try to make sure that it wasn't an accident. So nobody left out antifreeze in the last two weeks before this happened, and certainly not that night. I don't even know if they ever did, but it was just, it hadn't happened. I don't know. The raccoons could have gotten it. Julie's mother, Nancy, was bothered by something else that had occurred, though. While the family was by Julie's bedside, and the doctor still believed that there was a glimmer of hope, James told Nancy that it would be okay with him if she wanted to bury Julie in Missouri because he didn't even think he was going to be staying in Boston very long. Okay, so now he's coming off as a sociopath. Yeah, Nancy was completely taken aback because at that point, she's alive. She's still alive. The entire focus should be on sending that positive energy and those beliefs and praying and talking to her and holding her hand and letting the doctors do the work that they can and believing she's going to pull through, not saying, well, you know, when this goes uh, pear-shaped, you can bury her in Missouri if you want. So she told the police officer that. She said, that is just the one thing he did that would make me believe maybe he had something to do with this because it's just such a strange thing to say. I'm glad that she said that to the cops. Unfortunately, James's dark premonition came true. And shortly after this conversation, on Tuesday, September 7th, 2004, Julie succumbed to the poisoning and no. Away. I was hoping this was going to be like a surprise survivor story. Knowledge is power. And when you know more, you can make better decisions for your body, your health, and your future. There aren't many decisions bigger than having a kid, but for many women, their fertility is a big question mark. That's why Modern Fertility was created. It's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. You'll get insight into your hormone levels, your ovarian reserve, aka how many eggs you have compared to other women your age, 
and other important fertility factors. The results go deep into what every hormone means, and you can also talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse to review your results and options for the next steps. Traditional testing with your doctor can cost over $1,000, but Modern Fertility gets you the same info at $159, a fraction of the price. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder, you can get $20 off your test. If you want kids today or maybe just one day in the future, clinically sound information about your body can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. That means your test will cost $139 instead of the hundreds or thousands it could cost at a doctor's office. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. Modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. As a Love Murder listener, you know that the world can sometimes be a scary place. But no matter what happens out there, home should be the safest place there is for you and your family. That's why we recommend Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is advanced whole home security that puts you, your home, and your family's safety first. Andy, you know I've spent so much time thinking about security, safety, backup plans. All of that since starting our family with kids you just can't afford not to. Absolutely. I'm the same way. I love the extra peace of mind when we're traveling too. Mostly, I just want to feel comfortable and know that we have the best possible support for our family's safety. One of the things I love about Simply Safe is that they offer comprehensive protection not only from burglary or intruders, but against expensive home hazards like flooding and fires. And with 24-7 professional monitoring, Simply Safe's agents take action the moment a threat is detected, dispatching police or first responders in an emergency, even if you're not home. Simply Safe uses proprietary video verification technology so that monitoring agents can visually confirm the threat in order to get a higher priority 911 dispatch. Best of all, monitoring plans are affordably priced at $1 a day with no long-term contract or hidden fees, because feeling safe at home shouldn't break the bank. You can customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com slash lovemurder. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafe.com slash lovemurder. But now the police are investigating a homicide. A search of Julie and James's duplex did not turn up any antifreeze. They did find a couple medical-style eyedroppers in the back of James's car, but he explained that it was left over from medicating the couple's now-deceased cat who had coincidentally fallen ill months before. Did he fucking poison the cat? Jessica, did he poison the cat? Did he test it on the fucking cat? There's a suspicion that the cat was a casualty of his first attempt at poisoning. Unbelievable. I knew that one was going to get you. In fact, on the discussion group, there's like a lovely thread going on with everyone sharing pictures of their cats right now. Yeah, so I I had a feeling that that one thing is going to really get our lovers up in arms because we got a lot of lovers. We got a lot of cat lovers in this group. Would just be normal and put like some Molly water in your eye drops. <laughs> just be normal. Just like everyone else. <laughs> totally normal. <laughs> Molly water in your eye drops. 
If you're going to have a suspicious eye drop, just have it be Molly water. Like, that's not poison. Yeah, and also, how did he not think that that was going to look just as suspicious that he had done this to a cat or their cat had been mysteriously ill and died? Yeah, so weird. My cat also had kidney failure. So the police were able to seize a laptop. I think there was two. She had like a personal laptop and a work laptop that belonged to Julie. But there was no computer for James in the entire duplex, which is very strange for somebody who's attending Harvard Business School and working from home. Even stranger was that there was two workstations that had monitors, but no hard drives. Stop it. Yeah. So what'd he do? He just trashed his hard drive because he had all these search histories of how to suspiciously poison your wife and cat? He must have moved them somewhere or hid them somehow. So the police talked to a lot of Julie and James's friends and their inner circle. And other than the fact that, yes, he seemed very concerned about her whereabouts constantly, no one could even really think of a real fight that the couple had had. If anything, James had always been very loving, even like gross loving toward the wife that he very seemingly adored. One of their friends did, however, refute Jack Oldag's assertion that the couple hadn't had money problems. So apparently the Keones had gone on this beach vacation, I think, to North Carolina, and they had gone with two other couples. And there was one guy who booked everything, and each couple was supposed to hand him a check. Now, they went on the vacation, and there was excuse after excuse about why James couldn't give him this money. And one of his excuses was that he was going to leave the learning exchange and he was going to start his own company. And so he was putting all of his resources into that and he didn't have any available cash. And then he had the balls to not only not pay this guy, but ask him if he wanted to be an investor in his new company. Stop. (laughs) I feel like we've known people like that in other tales. Yes, just the brass balls. Yeah. So he... The guy, the friend was like, yeah, no, thank you. Uh, Can I have my money, please? And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll get you a check. So he gave him a check, but the check bounced. (gasps) How much was the check for? Gosh, I don't even know if it was a lot. I don't think it was more than $1,000. It was just like a North Carolina beach house rental. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That's so annoying because you want to like hope that when you book shit like that for your friends that like they're good for it, you know? Yes. And this guy was a doctor. His wife, I believe, was a nurse. They were doing well for themselves. And they both knew that Julie was sick. She had still been sick on the vacation. She had been in good spirits, but she hadn't been 100%. So at that point, he was like, you know, what? I'm going to let this go. Maybe they don't want to reveal that she's out of work because of her condition and stuff isn't going great for him. So let's just like, they're friends of ours. Let's just let it go. So they didn't end up following up with this. But he, when he was talking to the police, he was like, yeah, there's money problems. I would dig into what's going on in their marriage there. Okay. In the hours immediately following Julie's death, James also did two other strange things. First, he told one of the state police, like, hey, um, just so you know, Julie had been really worried about this kidney condition. She was really afraid that she was going to die. She was really sick with the pain and she was afraid of the pain of dying. So she was doing like a lot of research on chloroform and I think she might have ordered some online. So if you find 
that in her records or just chloroform anywhere, it's because she ordered it. A nurse decided that the best form of pain relief that she could come up with was to chloroform herself. That's a stretch. That is a stretch Armstrong stretch right there. (sighs) So, yeah, the next thing was that when he had come to the hospital and they had asked him if Julie was depressed, he had said no. But then magically, after they determined that she had poison in her system, he's like, actually, she was depressed. I can't even believe I forgot that she was talking to her really good friend Heather on the phone. And I heard them kind of darkly joking about it, like, oh, if this gets worse, I think I'm just going to have to off myself. So he said something like that to the police. And then he got on the phone with Heather and he was like, hey, I can't believe it either. She was like, what happened? How could this have happened? What do you know about this? And he's like, yeah, I don't know. But, you know, I did tell the police about how you guys were joking about suicide the other day. And she was like, what are you talking about? We have never, ever joked about suicide. That is not something that we would find amusing, even darkly. And that is not your wife's style. And you know that. She is very much like, they went to a Baptist college. It is like every life is precious. Suicide is a sin. Like This is not something that Julie would have joked about. And so she was very pissed off about that. And she was very pissed off now that she had to talk to the police and refute his statement. On September 9th, an autopsy was performed and it confirmed that Julie Oldag Keown had indeed died as a result of ethylene glycol poisoning. Based on the scar tissue on Julie's kidneys and the state of her body, it appeared, as well as the crystals, which I know we've talked about in another case that appear in your body, when you're poisoned with ethylene glycol, it appeared that she'd been poisoned with low doses over several months. And then she had been hit with a large dose Labor Day weekend, which caused the fatal attack. I'm sorry. It's remarkable that they can determine that. It is. Science is amazing. It's remarkable. The medical examiner ruled her death as a homicide because she did not believe that somebody would be able to withstand the pain of poisoning over several months on purpose. No. When there's so many other available ways to end your own life. So I've talked about it a couple times in this episode, but we've covered one other antifreeze poisoning, and that was the Lynn Turner, Glenn Turner, Randy Thompson episode. And I know some of you guys actually listen from newest back, so I'm not going to tell you what happened in that case. But it's interesting because this one coincides with ours, not just because it's the same murder weapon, but also because it just so happened that a big court TV documentary had aired about that case literally only a week or two before Julie started feeling sick. The police are looking into the fact that in that episode, I'm trying not to spoil it, the person who was doing the murdering and the poisoning very nearly got away with it. And maybe... James saw this and thought, wow, it looks like it was really hard for them to figure out that it was antifreeze poisoning. Just maybe this is something I could do. And then he was shocked as shit when they isolated it at the hospital while she was still alive. And he's like, oh, shit. I I mean, I don't know. What did we say? We said great doctors. 
great doctors. They were on top of this shit. So yeah, so that'll come up later. They even, when they are doing searches of Julie's computer and everything, they're looking for the name Lynn Turner, Glenn Turner, Randy Thompson to see if there was research done in that case. So yeah, Laura Bricker had a lot more information about acetylene glycol poisoning in her book than I initially even reported in our previous case. So I thought I would mention a couple of things that she brought up. First of all, antifreeze can be ingested accidentally, but that is mostly among very small children and animals who get into the antifreeze because it does have a very sweet flavor. So it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that somebody could drink a little and be like, oh, this is a sugary treat. Several countries and some of the United States at this point have already passed laws that adopt the use of a bittering agent in antifreeze to discourage that type of accidental consumption. Okay. She also wrote about a 1980s case, I think it was 1989, that involved ethylene glycol that completely blew my mind, Andy. So I'm going to share with you now about that case. And this is from Laura Bricker's book, Lie After Lie. This is about Patty Stallings. So Stallings' three-month-old son was having trouble breathing and was vomiting uncontrollably when she took him to a local emergency room. The treating doctor diagnosed the infant with ethylene glycol poisoning, and he was immediately taken out of her care and placed into a foster home but he stayed critically ill and he unfortunately died. Stallings was convicted of first-degree murder, though she vehemently denied that she had killed her son. While in prison, she gave birth to a second son who began displaying the same symptoms as the infant who had died. Wait, so was she pregnant when she was incarcerated? Yes. So she was pregnant before she went to jail. But she gave birth to this child while she was in prison She had no access to any poison at that point. So they're going, WTF, why is this kid appearing to be poisoned when we know that she hasn't had any access to the child or the poison? Through testing, the second child was found to have methylmalonate in his blood and urine and a condition called methylmalonic academia. Symptoms and conditions of this genetic metabolic disorder mimic that of ethylene glycol poisoning. Wait, what and how? She didn't poison him at all. This was a rare metabolic disorder that was mimicking the symptoms of poisoning. Terrifying. So she had been convicted in 1991 and she had been sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole But later that year, with a new lawyer, Stallings got a new trial, and her new lawyer presented evidence that the jury didn't hear at the first trial, including expert testimony that her son had died from this disorder. That diagnosis, combined with testimony that showed that the initial doctors who had examined the child had failed to properly diagnose him and just assumed his ailments were caused by ethylene glycol, resulted in the prosecution's decision to drop all charges against Stallings. Her criminal record was later cleared. Yeah, as it should be. But how is that something that's up with her body that's doing that if it happened twice to two different kids? Well, it's kind of like everything that we test for genetically when you're pregnant and then they do that heel prick as soon as they're born. I don't know if that 
specific metabolic disorder is one that they test for, but I do know that they test for a lot of metabolic disorders, including one that is very bad for infants that prevents them from being able to process dairy, including breast milk. Yep. So they test for a lot of the stuff. So it might be one of the tests now that we take, and it might not be from her body. It could just be that it ended up both her and her husband were carriers. Horrible, but also like kind of a blessing that it happened with the second too because she wasn't – Then she didn't spend the rest of her life. And the second baby lived. Oh, thank God. The real version of hell would be your three-month-old baby dying and then everybody thinks you did it. And you're saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And they're like, lady, there was only one of you around this child. Come on. Yeah, and you're also struggling with postpartum. You're struggling with postpartum. You lost your baby. I just can't imagine. It gives me the chills to think of someone having to go through that emotionally. Did her partner stay by her side? I'm not entirely sure because I basically just read about this case through Laura Bricker's book. I mean, that's a whole episode in and of itself. I'm sure that there's got to be a lot of resources out there for that case because it is mind-blowing. So naturally, the detectives asked the doctors if Julie could have potentially had this metabolic disorder, but apparently it's only ever seen in very, very young children. And in those cases, there's not crystals formed in the baby's bodies. That's another thing. They should have looked for these telltale signs of ethylene glycol poisoning, these crystals, and they didn't, which I hope that she also successfully sued the state and the doctors or whoever said she did this because that is effed up. Julie had the crystals in her body, so it was very clearly poisoning. Julie's funeral was held, and soon after, James surprised everyone by not finishing his MBA and instead hightailing it back to Missouri very shortly after. Was it all fake, the MBA? Maybe. I'm not telling you anything, you little spoiler. I'm not telling you shit. You guys, really, you're all thinking the same thing, and Andy's just bringing voice to it, but I'm not telling any of you shit right now. <laughs> yeah, so everyone's like, why would he do that? His landlord and the police were probably the most surprised because he did not bother to inform either of those parties that he was moving. And legally, he did not have to tell the police at this point because he was not charged with any crimes. And I don't even know if he was officially a person of interest at that point, though he should have been. Wow. So he was totally within his legal rights to leave the state at that point. The landlord, of course, was pissed. Not only had he left the duplex full of furniture, trash, and other personal belongings, but he hadn't paid the rent for September or October. Adding to the evidence that the couple had money problems, the landlord claimed that James had provided him with a notarized letter from the learning exchange when he moved in that stated that the company would be covering the Keown's rent as part of James's compensation package. The thing is, they never did. Over the handful of months that the Keowns had lived in the duplex, James had given him seven checks that bounced. Seven? Seven. So all of those times he eventually, days or weeks later, eventually got him a check that did work. But throughout the, I think, seven or eight months they had lived there, he had had seven checks that bounced altogether. I was going to say, like, why would they even let him stay? And the last time that they talked about it, he asked if he could just use his last, like, you know, when you put down your first and your last, he's like, I'm having just such a hard time. My wife is really ill. Can you just use my 
last for, I think, either August or September. And the guy felt just really bad. And he's like, yeah, I guess so. Like, it's use your last, but like, if you don't pay, I'm going to have to evict you. And that's going to be really hard because I know your wife is sick. Yeah, he's lucky he had a nice landlord. He's very lucky. And then he just bounced. So James doesn't tell his landlord he's leaving or anything, leaves all this stuff in the house and is gone. So the police are like, I'm sorry for your trouble. Good luck getting all this crap out, but we're going to search everything one more time. And it was very, very bizarre what he left. He left pretty much anything that pertained to Julie. He left all of Julie's clothes, all of her belongings, They had a very expensive sleigh bed as their marital bed. He left that. He left her wedding dress, photo albums, including their wedding album, and even her wedding and engagement rings. That's a lot to leave considering how controlling he was of her and protective. Also, when people are grieving, usually they're overly protective over belongings and items that their loved one had and they want to hold them closer to be near that person, not completely abandon them. Around the same time, one of Julie's best friends from Missouri, a woman named Christina Lyles, called the police in Massachusetts to report that she suspected that James had murdered Julie. Christina admitted that she had always thought that they had the perfect marriage, but now in retrospect, some things had never really lined up, especially about their finances. And recently she had caught James in some lies. First of all, she said, James and Julie always drove very high-end luxury vehicles or even sports cars. And it just did not seem likely that they would have been able to afford them on their salaries. I mean, she's a nurse and he works for a nonprofit. It felt very showy even when they came back from Chicago, to be honest. And that's when it started. And Christina said that it was very weird. And also it wasn't like Julie's style anyway. It's just something that she indulged James in. And Christina was very close, by the way. She is on The Perfect Murder Show And she talks about how Julie was this wonderful, loving person who was a bridesmaid in her wedding, who she went into premature labor and she didn't have any family around because it was happening too fast. And Julie was in the delivery room with her. That's how close these women were. And it seems like Julie and James had conflicting reports about how they could afford it because they were close enough that she said, like, this is crazy. How is James driving a Jaguar around? What's going on there? And so Julie had told her that James had inherited the Jaguar from a relative. That's apparently what James told Julie. But then later on, James told Christina himself that he had been given the car by the dealership in exchange for designing a website for them. Lol. 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 How much are Jaguars? I looked it up. They pretty much start at like 40 grand. No one's paying you 40 grand to design a website. Also, like, you don't, you think Jaguar doesn't have their own company to design their website or hired employee and they wouldn't do trade. It's ridiculous. So after Julie's death, Christina did some sleuthing by looking up local court records and found that the Jaguar dealership was trying to repossess the car and that a credit card company was suing James for $8,000. $521 that he owed them and had gone into collections. So scary. I mean, 8000 isn't even like 
it's a lot of money, obviously, but I, I would think in order for a company to go after you, it would have to be like an insane amount of money, you know? Yeah, I don't know. They were going after him. So she went on to say that James had almost seemed relieved at his beloved wife's funeral. She kept talking about how he wasn't crying. He wasn't upset. He was going around and smiling and greeting everyone and being like a host rather than being devastated. And she told her husband, if it was you, I'd be on the floor. No one could peel me off the floor. I'd need like three people to hold me up. I wouldn't be like walking around handshaking everyone. So she told that to the police. And she also said it was subsequent conversations that they had had while she was still trying to like buddy up with him to like find out stuff because she's smart. So she was calling him and being like, just want you to know I'm thinking about you and I hope you're doing all right. This must be so hard for you. And I know that they must be like investigating you because you're the husband and that's such bullshit. So she was being really sneaky to see what he would say. And he said, he was like just making all this shit up. He was like, oh yeah, it's just like, it's, Obviously, nobody thinks I did it, but the detectives who are investigating this are corrupt. They've already served prison time. People know that they're corrupt officers. It's like a total epidemic in Massachusetts. They have so many corrupt police officers. Everybody knows it. And in fact, the medical examiner that said she was poisoned is totally wrong. There's like all these cases pending against her because she doesn't do thorough or adequate autopsies. So that's bullshit too. And he's like, and you know, what's even insane is that they weren't even going to do an autopsy. I had to beg the hospital and the police to do an autopsy to get to the bottom of what happened to Julie. They weren't even going to do an autopsy on her. Can you believe that? And she was like, no, I cannot believe that. Yeah. I mean, she didn't say that to his face. She was like, that's crazy. But she knew she's a smart woman. She knows that this is ridiculous, that he's saying everybody is corrupt and inept. And they weren't even going to do an autopsy on a woman who had been found to be poisoned while she was still alive. So naturally, all of this was completely untrue. And in fact, James had weirded out Dr. Rankin's by grilling him about the hospital's autopsy protocol before Julie had even passed. Yeah, planning where she's going to be married and where the autopsy is happening before she dies. While she's still alive and fighting for her life, he's like, so Dr. Rankin's like, so do you guys like determine the cause of death afterwards? I think this was before they even had determined that it was absolutely ethylene glycol poisoning. And he's like, yes. But why are we talking about that? You're supposed to be thinking about how you can help your wife get better. Why are you thinking about what's going to happen at her autopsy? For all of his like planning and meticulous conniving, he really dropped the ball in person with some of these things. I mean, it's the classic overconfidence. It's the ego, huh? It's the ego because maybe he did watch that documentary on the Lynn Turner case. And maybe he really thought that they weren't going to pick up on this antifreeze apparently because he had no good excuse, no good exit strategy for what to say or do once they did determine that she had been poisoned. And now he's trying to reframe everything as she was suicidal because it is the only thing that might even remotely make sense other than the raccoon theory, which doesn't make any sense. I think he'd like tested that one out. Like I'm gonna throw it out there. And everyone is like, yeah, no. And he's like, okay, backpedaling to suicide, which he did. So he did this in another conversation with Christina who reported this to the police. 
he was like, well, you know how depressed she was and, you know, how she didn't want to live and burden me with me having to take care of her her entire life and like not having kids. So obviously she killed herself because she's such a good person and she just didn't want to have to make me take care of her for the rest of her life. And Christina's like, I don't even know what planet you're on. Like, she would never do that in a million years. You are insane. Yeah. Could you imagine if, like, I weirdly passed away and then Dan said I was suicidal and I literally talked to you every, every day. day? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, big hell to the nobody. And then I'd speed dial the detectives on your case and I'd wear a wire and I'd catch that motherfucker. Is that what she did? No, but that's what I would do. <laughs> I, wish, I was I wish. like, that's badass. Okay. I don't know if they asked her, but yeah, tell Dan if he ever gets any ideas. Well, actually, don't tell him because I don't want him to know I'm wearing a wire. Okay. I'll <laughs> keep it to myself. Also, Dan would never kill you. I'll be sure he's to like keep it me. to myself. No, he's like me. We can't live without you guys. Like there's a direct correlation between Dan and Jesse and Andy and Nathaniel. And I'm going to tell you guys a secret you probably know is that Dan and Jesse need Andy and Nathaniel a lot more than the <laughs> other way around. That's not true. <laughs> we oh got to keep you guys alive. Oh my uh, God. Because you keep us alive. So she didn't wear a wire. But she also was like, I'm going to spill some more tea about their financial situation. James could not even pay for Julie's funeral. A close family friend did. Oh, no. Whoa, that's embarrassing, Mr. Harvard. It is embarrassing. And throughout further investigation, they were able to prove that James had lied in several of his police interviews. He said at some point between the August emergency room visit and when she actually passed away that he had gone to this specific CVS to ask about these drug interactions because he believed that's what was causing her illness. And they asked him when he went, what hours he was there. When they reviewed the security footage, he had not set foot in the place when he said he was supposed to be there. And the same was true of the Shaw's grocery store visits that he said. Like there was no evidence that he had ever been to that Shaw's at the time that he said he was. Like there's cameras. Yeah, there's cameras, brah. Come on. By this point, James had completely dropped out of his in-laws' lives, which is not a normal reaction. Usually when you lose somebody and it's somebody else knows them and loves them the way you do, you guys are actually more bonded you're spending more time together because you are the only people who can really understand what it's like to have that huge gaping absence in your life. Yeah, you're right. He just messed everything up after. He had no landing strategy on this terrible murder plot, which by the way, he had a lot of time to think about because it took months to kill her. Like the fact that like he had no strategy for getting himself out of the situation means he was really dumb and really full of himself that he thought that people were just going to like be like, okay, you seem like such a great guy. I guess we'll look past the fact that you were the only possible one who could have poisoned your wife. Unreal. So he has completely ghosted his in-laws and they are, of course, in touch with the authorities in Massachusetts. And they were like, you know, I don't know if you know this, but their cat also died. And the cops were like, we might have heard a little thing about that. And they're like, yeah, we now believe based on what happened to the cat that he was 
absolutely practicing on the cat before he used the antifreeze on Julie. So they went to the cat's veterinarian and the veterinarian said that the cat had been vomiting. He had stopped eating. And then they explained that the cat was discovered to have terminal liver failure. And they knew that there was going to be no quality of life for this cat So they elected to euthanize it. The strange thing, though, was that James requested no autopsy for the cat and that the cat was immediately cremated, which, I mean, I think most people cremate their animals probably, but like still the fact that it's like no autopsy and immediately throw her in the oven, you know? He didn't want anyone checking it out. Yeah, he can't have a trail of later on. They're like, oh my goodness, your cat must have accidentally ingested antifreeze. The last straw was that on October 21st, 2004, the detectives were notified that James was trying to cash in on Julie's $250,000 life insurance policy. I was wondering. And it all came full picture for them. So they figured it was just about time to get on a plane, get over to Missouri, and conduct some more interviews to those who knew James or thought they knew James. Wait, so... Was he just like asking Julie to squirrel away her money so that there was like a savings as well? We don't know. That's something she told both her parents and several close friends was like, this is so great. I'm just literally putting my paycheck in savings. I don't even have to worry about anything. We do not know what was really going on. But that was what she believed was going on. She also could have been giving it to him and trusting that he was putting it in savings. Yep. Because it doesn't mean when she says I'm putting everything in savings, it doesn't mean she was physically doing it. She might have been like, oh, I'll I'll hand you my check. Thank you so much for putting in savings for me. Yeah. So so scary. They had already reached out to the Learning Exchange's CEO, Tammy, to inquire about James's employment. And she had been over the phone like, yeah, we fired that dude at the beginning of the summer. And I don't even have the time to tell you how screwed up this entire saga is. So they're like, we're going to fly on over there and we are going to sit down with you, which is what they did. So Tammy explained in person that James, who preferred to be called JP at work, had made an excellent first impression. She said he came to his interview wearing an impeccably tailored designer suit. He drove this fancy Jaguar and he had glowing references from prominent figures at his impressive former companies. She questioned why he would want to work for a nonprofit company for a much less salary than the six-figure one he had been commanding or saying he was commanding at former companies. But he said, according to the book, Lie After Lie, this was why he wanted to work for a nonprofit. Okay, are you ready? He said that the terrorist attacks of September 11th had changed his life. After the attacks, James and Julie had decided they wanted to move home to Kansas City to be near family and friends. He wanted to change the direction of his life and work in a meaningful job at a nonprofit organization because he wanted to give back. Giving back was personal to him, he told them, because of his own upbringing. His father had been a lobbyist when James was young, but he had had a very serious alcohol problem, and that background made James want to help others. Money no longer mattered to him, James said, as much as the chance to offer his skills, talents, and time for a worthy cause. Wow. I wonder what movies he watched and collected that. That is just a 
bullshit parade. Ugh. Anyway, apparently Tammy said, though, that he was so convincing and so genuine seeming in real life that they were like, wow, this guy is incredible. And they almost hired him basically like on the spot. Uh, But right away, there was already issues. He was clearly a very egotistical prima donna. He refused to park his Jaguar in the company parking lot. So I guess that they had a close parking lot that was reserved only for clients. And then you had to park in this like parking structure across the street if you were an employee, and he basically refused to, and he had to be reprimanded several times for taking up client spots because he said that his Jaguar was too nice to go in the employee parking area. Oh my God. What a piece of work. Piece of work. So already he's getting off on the wrong foot with some people. However, he did spend a lot of time basically buttering up to Tammy, especially because she's the CEO. She's the head honcho. And he was constantly in her office. He was always trying to schmooze her. And it seemed like he did that a lot with other employees more than even working. And when he came in, there was a woman above him in marketing. And she talked about in the book, Lie After Lie, how he just systematically undermined her over and over again and would do his best to get buddy-buddy with other people and align them against her. And she got so exhausted by his bullshit machinations that she ended up just quitting and being like, fine, you can have it. It's not worth it to me. And he then became the head of marketing. Oh, my God. He pushed her out. And nobody cared because he was winning the popular opinion around the office. Tammy said she had her suspicions about him and she kept him at an arm's length because she's the boss and she had to. But she saw that he was charming and he was getting along with everybody. And the one thing that she definitely had a red flag about is that he was organizing these like happy hour pub crawls. And it seemed like all of the younger women in the office were going on these and he was like buying drinks for everybody. And when she mentioned it, that he was, you know, so social, he was like, yeah, well, can I just expense that? Because it's just so good for morale in the office. And she's like, we're a nonprofit educational company. I'm not going to give you money to take out the 20-something-year-olds who work for us. Are you kidding me? <gasps> that. And then she said later on that when he was like slacking on things that he was supposed to be doing for the company and she really like basically put the hammer down he would end up turning in something that she would find out later one of those 20-something young girls that he was taking out and flying with drinks had actually done. He wasn't doing any of the work himself. Oh my God, this guy. So she had some vague notions that maybe he wasn't completely doing all of his own work himself, but the work was getting done. There was one notable exception, which was that he had been hired to develop this interactive website for them. And that was not coming along, but everything else was getting done. And when he approached her with the idea about getting his MBA, she was like, yeah, I mean, you can. Like, that's something. Like, we're not going to pay you to do it, but you can do it if you want. And we can figure out some way that you can still work for the company and get a paycheck while you're in school. I think that coming from somebody who had an advanced degree from Columbia, she thought that, you know, higher education is always a valuable investment. So he's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to apply to Harvard. And she's like, okay, good luck. (laughs) 
<laughs> Good luck, man. So she was like very happily surprised when a couple of months later he waltzed in with an acceptance and said that not only was he accepted, he got a full senior scholarship based on his exceptional academic ability. She was surprised. But when she got the acceptance letter from Harvard admissions confirming that he had actually been accepted, she was like, well, okay then. I mean, I guess, I guess he got in. That's crazy to me. Now, he had lied on his resume. So Tammy didn't know this, but he hadn't ever graduated from his undergraduate school. He didn't have a college degree. And moreover, when he had been in school, before he dropped out, he only had a 1.9 GPA. 1.9? 1.9. So you already called it that this is bullshit. But the fact that he went so far to say that he got a scholarship because of his once in a million academic ability is mind-boggling. Also, with the notarized letter that said that they were going to pay for his rent, they were actually very deeply suspicious of the woman who was the notary because apparently she showed up on a couple documents. So at first they're thinking, she's in bed with him. They got something going on. But it just turned out that she didn't lock her desk and she was a notary in the office and she left her desk unlocked at night and he went into her desk and stole her notary stamp. That has to be a federal crime. It has to be. Because isn't stealing mail a federal crime? Yeah. So I don't know what falsely notarizing paperwork has I to mean, be. I mean, there's a whole bunch of crimes that happened in this. This is, this podcast today is the combination of your favorite con artist podcasts where you find out about these people that are doing these unbelievable things that you cannot believe they have the gall to do. <sighs> And a true crime podcast because he was a very, very bad, lousy, not so bright con man. I feel like that goes hand in hand with a lot of our episodes, though, like the unbelievable gall. Yes, there's always somebody. I mean, I think if anyone goes so far as to think that they can delude themselves to thinking that they are somehow entitled to murder and then that they will get away with it, then they are definitely delusional, narcissistic Whatever their issue is that they think that they have that right and that they are also so smart that they're going to get away with it when almost no one does. Yeah. So she gets this letter. It seems legit. They go over the course load. She's excited for him. The company didn't pay for anything. They didn't pay for relocation fees or anything for them because this was obviously a choice he was making for himself and for the family. The only thing they bought him was a cell phone that had like, you know, you could talk at any point because they needed to be in better contact now that he was going to be out of the office. So James is supposed to start Harvard in January of 2004. He was starting in the second semester there. And she began to get concerned when he was still in Missouri at the end of January. And she said to him, hey, like, hasn't the semester already started? Like, this is your first semester at Harvard. Don't you think you should be there? Yeah. And he was like, oh, no, I got a special dispensation for starting late because of my scholarship situation. Said no one. Yeah, I went to an Ivy League school. That's not how they operate, especially with scholarship students. They expect more from a scholarship student, not less. And it was interesting. She also noted that there was a pattern whenever he was lacking in something or she had to question some behavior. She was trying to ferret out the truth about something he was telling her. He always seemed to have some sort of crisis. 
very conveniently. So when she was questioning him about this specific situation, like why he wasn't in Massachusetts, why he wasn't starting Harvard, when she was like really drilling down on him, all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'm so sick. And he didn't come to work for three days. And when he came back, he was like covered with scabs. It looked like he had self-inflicted these wounds all over his face. And he had shaved his head because he said like the scabs were so bad. And he's like, well, I just got diagnosed with MS. And she's like, okay, like is scabs all over your body, like a sign of MS? And she said later that it never came up again after that one time where he was trying to not answer her questions. Another time when he was trying to get out of something, I think it might've been related to his lack of progress on the website. She said that he told everyone that he was attacked, that he was mugged going to his car because he had to go all the way to the employee parking lot. Oh my God. Where all the other employees walked every day without being mugged. (laughs) Yes. And... Even Julie's friends like talked about that. They were like, it's so weird. Like, it seems like James just has the worst luck. Something's always happening bad to him. Yeah, because he's a liar. He's a liar. Liar pants on fire. So, yeah. By the time he leaves and he's actually in Massachusetts, the CFO of the company, Tracy Burroughs, was having some serious issues with him and his expense report. So he is spending all sorts of money. He has been giving thousands and thousands of dollars to this company, Interactive Methods, to build this website, and they're not seeing anything. So she is like on top of him. She's like, I don't know why you're spending this much. I don't know what you're doing. I am not seeing any product. I'm in charge of the company's finances. I need to see what's going on here. And they were fighting so badly that he, again, overshot what he thought was going on in his life and his relationships because he called Tammy, the CEO, at her home in Missouri at 10 p.m. at night while she was in bed with her husband and said, you know what? We just have to get rid of Tracy. She's really not doing a good job and she's being so unnecessary. We just have to fire Tracy. And she's like, what are you talking about? We. We, yeah. Until that point, I feel like there was a lot of things that she was putting up with or she was saying, you know, he's really personable. He's really great. Like he makes a good impression, da, da. And then at this point, she's like, how dare you call me at my home at 10 p.m. at night when I'm with my family to tell me, the CEO of this company, to fire somebody who is very rightfully up your ass about your mysterious expense reports? Oh, my God. Yeah. So Tracy, of course, is like, yeah, screw you, dude. I'm going to get to the bottom of whatever scam you're trying to pull here. And after he dodged several conversations about how he had been paying this company interactive methods for months and months and months, thousands and thousands of dollars with no work product apparent, she finally said, I'm going to go there myself and I'm going to talk to a project manager or somebody to figure out what work they've done. Good luck. Lo and behold, she goes to the address that they have been issuing these checks to and it is a P.O. box in a UPS store. I have become so entangled in this part of the story that I forgot that this was a sub story that she's telling the cops about him. Right. You know what I mean? That's insane. When I was listening to the audiobook, I was like so swept up in the con artist stuff that it's like when we go back to him getting his for poisoning his wife, it's like, wow, it's just shocking the levels of deception. The con artistry is real. You and I talk about this off the podcast all the time too, that it is 
so shocking to us that somebody could put that amount of time, effort, brain power into the con rather than just like doing this for real and building a business and being a good employee and working hard because it's clear that there's some intelligence. There's a lot of charm here. There's, it's just, there's so many ways you could use these powers for good to yeah. willingly choose this to me, it seems like a very stressful life of constant lying and deceit. It goes beyond anything I could imagine. Wouldn't you be stressed a hundred percent of the time? Babe, you know, I get stressed about everything. I could not function. I would literally shut down if I had to juggle the different lies I was telling people. You have to be so fucked up in the head in order to think that that way of life is actually going to help you become success. And it's also not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And running away to Missouri isn't going to save you. I mean, it's not like you're leaving the country. Yeah, exactly. Apparently, your cons have not paid off enough that you can go to some uh, desert island where no one's going to find you. You're actually going back to where you did all the cons. Like, it's, he has no end game. There's more cons. This isn't like the only one. So they ended up receiving a bill from a company called Wetsu Creative for nine grand for developing the same website that Interactive Methods had been hired to build and was allegedly building. When they called Wetsu Creative, the owner was a man named Jason who identified himself as a friend of James's who had been hired by James to build the website. And they were like, we're not going to pay you. We don't even know who you are. He did not talk to us about this. In fact, he's been spending thousands and thousands of dollars paying this other company to build this website. So I'm sorry. You have to take up the work you did with him and not us. And Jason was pissed. And he's like, yeah, I've been trying to reach him all the time. And at the point where I was like, I need to get my money back, I just decided to bill you guys directly. So I'm also like scammed in this experience. They also said, he's like, I thought it was totally legit. Like he told me all about his work. And obviously he does work for them. He's on, you know, the website or whatever. And he's like, he even took me for a tour of the office. But I guess I should have realized it was a little fishy that he only took me for a tour of the office after hours when the office was closed and I didn't meet any other of the employees. Uh, Yeah, I'd say that's a red flag, dude. (laughs) Super red flag. So Tammy at this point was like, I think this guy is just totally full of shit. And she tried to call back James's references because he had been working for the company, I think, for like a year and a half at this point, and his references had been glowing. So she wants to get in touch with the people who work for them. Yeah, because she's like, wait, this is crazy. I talked to you a little while ago, and you said he was so amazing, but we are coming up and finding out all of this stuff, and I, I just have to run it by you. And every single one, there was like three references, all of their numbers were disconnected. So she started really thinking about it and she realized that he always had several cell phones on him and always a reason why he had to have several cell phones. And he worked in radio and could do all these different voices. He would sometimes do like impressions and things like that around the office to make people laugh. And she's like, holy shit, I was talking to him all three times. Unreal. He was his own references. That's like unbelievably ballsy. He also could have like had a really successful like voiceover career in LA. (laughs) Yeah. 
If he could get away with that, then absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so she is like, this is looking really, really bad. So at that point, she faxed a copy of James's acceptance letter from Harvard to Harvard admissions to oh verify. My God, no. Yeah, she's like, I just need to verify that this is authentic. I don't want to tell you why, <laughs> but I need to know. And they were like, oh, yeah, we have never heard of this guy. The business school had never received an application from him. We don't know who it is. We're very alarmed that somebody made this completely fraudulent acceptance letter. It didn't look anything like their real acceptance letters, although they did have the dean of the business school's signature on it, which was, of course, forged. The police followed up on this. They confirmed with Harvard that he had never attended Harvard Business School. He had never been applied or accepted. He was, however, enrolled in one Harvard Extension School class. Now, guys, a lot of people, I hear about this all the time. Somebody recently was talking to me about somebody who went to Harvard and I was curious and I looked it up and they went to Harvard Extension School. And this is not to take away anything from anyone who goes to Harvard Extension School. I went to Harvard Extension School after Emerson for my writing classes, but it is not the same as going to Harvard because it's their continuing education program and anyone who pays the fee can get in basically. Yeah, you don't have to be accepted. No, if you take a higher level course, you have to prove that you took X, Y, and Z other courses. Like I had to submit a writing sample to get into my advanced workshop but for the most part, I did not have to go through the rigorous Harvard application process to get into the Harvard Extension School. Yeah, and take like SATs and shit. Exactly, exactly. So uh, there's a difference here. And basically, he enrolled in the one class and the uh, cherry on top of the con Sunday was that he failed that course. He could not even hack it at Harvard Night School. Oh, honey. So when their company lawyer was able to prove that James Keown was listed as the owner of interactive methods and that he had been depositing the checks into his personal account, they finally fired him. So the Massachusetts cops went back home with a heck of a lot more information and James was up to his old tricks in Kansas City. He got hired at an executive headhunting business by lying as usual. He said that he had been the director of sales and marketing for Disney and ABC in Boston. Oh, my God. Jess, did Tammy just never report any of this? I think that there was some ongoing litigation happening at the time that she found out that he may have poisoned his wife as well. Yeah. I know that there was several lawsuits that were pending against him at the time of this investigation. The credit card company obviously was suing him. There was the Jaguar thing. I think that the Learning Exchange was building a lawsuit against him as well because the Learning Exchange was doing their own investigation because there there was more. There's more stuff that he did that they were still finding out at the point that the Massachusetts police are also investigating him for Julie's murder. It's also a nonprofit. Like, how disgusting are you? It's sick. It's disgusting. It really is. So he's lying to this new guy, this new person. And he has not, I, I don't think at this point, received any life insurance money, but he is somehow buying a BMW. He leased a luxury loft, but he had to uh, get rid of those things and move back in with his mommy when his new boss found out that he was a total fraud. 
found out what happened at his old company and that he was under investigation for poisoning his wife. His new boss was like, you know, thank you. No, thank you to you. Get the hell out of here. Here's a banker box. Put all of your shit back in it and get out. To the left, to the left. Everything, everything you own, you own in, is a in the box to the left. Yeah. Wow. So he had to move back in with his mom. And when the guy who had hired him at the, you know, headhunting company got back, apparently he had left the company laptop, thankfully. And so he opened up the laptop to give it to another employee. And he found out that James had listed his, you know how you create your own name for your Wi-Fi network? His was Kaiser Soze. Now, have you seen The Usual Suspects? Yeah, like forever ago. Forever ago. But the twist, sorry guys, it's like a movie from a million years ago, so you cannot get mad at me for spoilers. But the twist is that there's this con man, Kevin Spacey, who's like a low-level con man, I believe, I think, as far as I can remember. And he like walks with a limp and he speaks like in this very specific way. And he's talking about how he conned the wrong guy and he got involved with this super criminal overlord, Kaiser Soze, who's like this mysterious character who's like chasing him this entire movie. And he's telling the story to the police about what happened in this, the events of the movie. But right at the end of the movie, they're like, okay, well, we'll let you go. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry you've been through so much. And they let him go. And then as he's like walking away, the limp disappears. And it turns out he was Kaiser Soze the whole time. That's my uh, Jesse Bray recap. That was good. And so the whole thing about it is that he's a con man who gets away with tricking the police and gets away scot-free, which is apparently what this guy thought of himself. Of course. Yeah, even Laura Bricker put in the opening lines of her book a quote from The Usual Suspects. She wrote, well, I guess it's from the, the movie, but she put as the opening quote, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Kevin Spacey as verbal kint in The Usual Suspects. Yeah. Yep. So it's just so ridiculous that he just was like thinking that's who he was. He's creating just the perfect little package with a ribbon on top for the police. He really is. Yeah. Oh, God, the <laughs> stupidity is mind-blowing. So thusly in November of 2004, James was back living with his mommy and working at the radio station he had worked at when he was 12 years old. Oh, sorry. Full circle. Yes. So he got his own radio show. It was called Party Line. I think it was, like I said, it was like a political talk show news type program as far as I understand. And I guess it was actually very popular, though, because they had to expand it to be on twice a day. So he was getting to do his show, be live on the air twice a day. So he told people not that he had been fired and rejected and had never gone to Harvard, of course. He just told people that, yes, he had been enrolled in the Harvard MBA program, but he was so devastated about the loss of his unbelievably beloved wife that he was just emotionally bereft and he had to move back home so he could have the support of his mother and be around familiar people and places. And he really just needed the love of the heartland at that point. But coworkers later reported 
very conflicting stories about how exactly Julie died. His stories, he can't even keep them straight. He told one person that she died of stomach cancer, another that it was suicide, and yet another that it was a long illness due to a chronic kidney condition. He's just testing the waters, huh? Uh Uh-huh. By the end of the year, he was already dating again. Now, she passed away in September. By the end of 2004, he's already dating people. He has gone through, I think it was like two or three different women who worked at the radio station. Whoa. And then at the beginning of the next year, he actually got very serious with one woman and he wrote about it in his blog. He thought he was so famous. He had a blog where he mused about his life and love after loss. And the most disgusting thing about it was that this new girlfriend's name was Julie. And he referred to her in the blog and two friends as new Julie. I knew you were going to say that. I can't imagine your thought process to do something so distasteful publicly like that within six months of your wife passing away. Yeah. And new Julie was okay with it? Apparently. And he told new Julie that his wife died of suicide. That's That was the story Ugh. he told to her. I mean, that makes it even worse kind of, right? I think it makes it worse because you're killing somebody and then you're blaming them. You're saying that they did it. By 2005, the detectives were getting really frustrated because they didn't have any extremely compelling evidence. They know he's a con man. They know he's a liar. They know he never went to Harvard and he was never accepted to Harvard. They know he's an embezzler. They do not have proof that he poisoned Julie. There's no like bottles being found in the house or glasses with antifreeze. There's no antifreeze anywhere. They don't have his computer. They cannot find his laptop. So there's no, they can't look to see if he searched these things. They have nothing that would hold up for him being arrested for murder at this point. So they just don't really know what to do. They know that they have their guy, but they don't know how they're going to get him. But they did get a break in May of 2005 when a nurse friend of Julie's named Sam Shoemaker called to report strange interactions with James around the time of Julie's death. So he said he he didn't report it immediately because he knew that the police were coming out to Missouri where he lived and interviewing people and that they were reaching out to people that were known associates of James and Julie. So he just kind of thought somebody was going to reach out to him and it never happened. So by May, his wife was like, you have to reach out to the police. You know things. And by then, he also thought like, oh, you guys have probably heard this before, but I'm just going to like tell you what I know because I just want to feel better about myself at the end of the day. So he said that he talked to James after Julie had passed away and like everyone wanted to know how she possibly could have gotten antifreeze into her system. And James stuck to the story that... He believed that she picked it up and drank it from some neighbor's trash while she was in a fugue state from being on prednisone. But this time he specifically said that he caught her drinking. He basically said she was sitting on a curb near their neighbor's house drinking antifreeze from a Gatorade bottle. So with Sam, for some reason, he went into specifics about specifically catching her. Now, this struck Sam as very, very odd because, number one, he is a nurse and he's been a nurse for 20 years and he has never known this to be a side effect of prednisone. So he's like, this seems very odd. And then the strange specificity of the Gatorade bottle. Yeah. Also, why would you put it in something that looks like you could drink out of it? That's like the Drano story that I've told you about. 
with Jan. Wait, I don't remember this. Oh my God. I never told you this story. No, tell me. Oh my God. That's like a crazy sub story. But Dan was in a band when he was younger and it was a bunch of doctors who wanted to like play on the side. And one of the doctors, they were talking about like their most horrific stories that they had ever experienced in the ER or whatever. And this woman was cleaning her house and her husband had been out at work and she had put Drano down the sink to clear it up and put the rest of the Drano in a cup. And left the cup on the counter so that when it finished doing the work, she was going to pour the rest of it down and she had already disposed of the Drano container. And the husband came home and drank the Drano. Oh, my God. He thought God. it was a cup he of died? water. Mm-hmm. It literally like destroyed everything <gasps> all down his esophagus and everything. By the time they got to the ER, he was already like gone. Oh, God, that poor woman must have felt so guilty for the rest of her life. It's horrifying. So Drano is clear. Is that why? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. I literally, I can't have Drano in the house. Like when Dan has to do Drano, I like, because that story traumatized me so much, I like have to have him like set it outside. I can't believe I haven't heard that before. Crazy, right? Yeah. And that's the thing is that yellow Gatorade is exactly the color or almost exactly. It's very close to the color of antifreeze. Oh, is it? Yes, it is like this, like that neon yellow green shade. I don't know why I always thought it was blue, but I think I'm thinking of windshield wiper fluid. Yeah. So, I mean, at least at the time this was the case. I haven't looked at antifreeze in a very long time. So this is very bizarre that that it would be that somebody would put it in a Gatorade bottle. And also the guy thought that if they were switching out their antifreeze solution, a Gatorade bottle would be too small. You would need like a whole jug or something. So he's like, this doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. He also said, what's more, going back to the cat, is that Sam had had dinner with James and Julie directly after their cat died and Julie was still recovering from it. And at the time he was saying, well, what could have happened to cause this cat to have liver failure? And apparently James just casually threw it out there that maybe the cat could have accidentally ingested antifreeze. Uh, it's almost like he's like leaving breadcrumbs to get caught, but I don't think he is because I don't think he wants to get caught. I think he's just that much of an egomaniac. None of this makes a lot of sense altogether. So with this information, the police called back some of Julie's best friends and asked them if Julie had ever mentioned anything about James giving her Gatorade, her having to drink Gatorade. For some reason, it had stuck in Sam Shoemaker's head, this whole thing about the Gatorade bottle. And the thing I said about the antifreeze coloring is similar to the coloring of the traditional lemon-lime Gatorade. And the sugar content involved in Gatorade would mask the flavor because antifreeze is sweet. So it wouldn't be detected necessarily. And her friend said, oh my gosh, yes, she didn't love drinking Gatorade, but James was obsessed with making her drink it, saying that her doctor wanted her to keep her electrolytes up for her kidney health. So he would force her to drink it. In fact, one of her friends said that she was on the phone with Julie and in the background, James was shouting, hey, tell her to drink her Gatorade. She needs to drink her Gatorade. And when her friends asked her about this, she was like, oh, he's just taking such good care of me. He just wants to make sure I follow the doctor's orders. It's just really weird because I hate the flavor of it. And I didn't used to hate the flavor of it. I just feel like since I've gotten sick, I just everything tastes weird and wrong. So that must be it. Honey, because you're being poisoned. 
Yeah, she had no idea. And that's another reason why everyone thought he was taking such good care of her because he's like, make sure you stay hydrated. We need to keep your electrolytes up. Meanwhile, that's what's doing it. So they were like, please, 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 please. They go to the AD. They're like, let us nail this guy. Is this enough? Do we have enough? And at that point, the ADA was like, it's going to be close, but let's go for it. Let's arrest this mother effer. Yeah. So on November 7th, 2005, more than a year since Julie's slow, torturous poisoning had finally resulted in her death, James was arrested in Missouri while he was on air. Wow. When they landed, they were like, sweet, he's on air right now. So we know exactly where he is because we know he's broadcasting from the radio station live. And they were able to go right up to the radio station. Now, he ended up being on a commercial break. So it wasn't like they, unfortunately, people didn't hear like it actually happening. That's so sad. I know. So he was on a commercial break and he saw them coming and he tried to boot scoot boogie out of there and they slammed him down and cuffed him and they said, sorry, J.P. O'Neill, it's time to go to jail. It's time to go to JPO jail. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that was actually what Becky told me. I think, as I recall, I'm so sorry, Becky. You wrote me this email so long ago. So if I'm getting details wrong, please forgive me. But I think what she said was that she was local to this radio station and found out that he was arrested on air. I mean, they had to come back from commercial break and they're like, so sorry. DJ, JP O'Neill won't be able to continue the party line because he's going straight to jail. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. He was extradited back to Massachusetts and he got no bail or he couldn't raise it. Whatever way, he stayed in jail in Massachusetts. While he was awaiting trial, the police and the learning exchange uncovered even more fake companies that James had set up and paid for non-existing services or even things like fake donations to non-existing charities. Altogether, they believe he may have embezzled up to $100,000. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But okay, so here's another weird point, though, is that... They did a very, very deep investigation and they had no idea where all this money was going other than the nice cars and paying for his apartments. But by all accounts, they were very much in debt and broke at the time that Julie died. And they never turned up a gambling addiction or a secret girlfriend or like a secret heroin addiction. They have no idea where this money was going, and they still don't know the motivation behind all of this con artistry and really the murder. I mean, to be straightforward, you could say he got himself into this situation and he murdered Julie for the $250,000. That's the most obvious. But it's just really weird that there wasn't even like another woman involved. Yeah, but his other woman is himself. Oh, that's a good point. It's his ego. Yeah. That he would rather kill his wife, who maybe he did love-ish as much as he was capable, rather than have himself revealed to be the loser con man that he was. 
And also just to see how much like his ego was so curious about how much he could get away with, you know? Yeah, I think that's definitely something we're discounting because we're looking at it from our perspective that there are a certain subset of people that get off on how much they can get away with and what they can trick people into believing. I think some of that is human nature too. I mean, it's just like some people are so extreme and actually like act on it. But I think people are always curious about testing boundaries. I mean, we're about to have two toddlers. They're going to be starting to do that too. (laughs) (laughs) Toddlers are basically the original con men. Yes. So they had another, now this was the bigger break. Like it was Sam Shoemaker's testimony is great. And that got him to get arrested. However, then they were contacted by a high school friend of James named Betsy. And Betsy had actually worked at the radio station with James. And she said to the police that James's mother, Betty, had called her as his lifelong friend to go to his office at the station because she still worked there and get a laptop that was left in his office and bring it to Betty because he's in jail in Massachusetts right now. So, of course, Betsy did no such thing and she called the police as she should have. But by the time that the police got the appropriate warrants and everything they could to go into the radio station and get this laptop, Betty had already gone in herself and taken it. Unreal. So his mom had it. So then they get the warrants to go into her house and search for the laptop. And she's like, we don't have it because I already sent it to Massachusetts to James's defense attorney. So the defense attorney is in possession of this laptop that most likely has evidence. So then they had to, of course, file all of these appeals to get the laptop to examine it for evidence out of the custody of the defense attorney. Is that legal to like send it to the defense attorney or? I mean, I don't know because I'm not an attorney. I mean, I could say you could say you could argue that it was very innocent that she sent it to his defense attorney because there may have been evidence on it that he was innocent. Yeah. Okay. So she sent it to him to prove that her son was innocent. Yep. So yeah, there's a lot of wiggle room there. I mean, it seems clear to us that they were trying to hide or destroy evidence that he was guilty. They could argue that it was the opposite. And through a lot of legal finagling, they finally got this laptop. Of course, everything had been deleted. Oh my God. But, you know, they still have forensic data scientists who can find out what was deleted. So it didn't work. Nothing worked. Even though they tried to delete everything, they still found evidence of certain searches and emails, etc. And it looked like he had absolutely researched several different poisonous chemicals before landing on antifreeze. He had tried to delete searches for the anarchist cookbook in August of 2004, as well as his search information about chloroform and homemade poisons. Jesus. Altogether, he had searched for poison 20 different times between moving to Massachusetts and Julie's death. So this is a very cha-ching moment. (laughs) They finally have the evidence they need that they think they can probably secure a conviction at this point. Now there was like a months-long hullabaloo about whether or not this evidence would be allowed in court. So it was eventually ruled admissible, but the trial was further delayed because James switched defense attorneys three times. 
Whoa. Every time he got a new defense attorney, they would very rightfully argue that they needed time to get caught up on the case so they could adequately represent him. But it just pushed this trial out for a very long time. It finally kicked off on June 16th, 2008, more than three years since James was arrested and nearly four since poor Julie had died. The prosecutor contended that James Kahn's lies, theft, and considerable debts were about to be revealed over the summer of 2004 after he was fired, so he subjected his wife to months of painful, torturous poisoning before finishing her off for the $250,000 life insurance policy. Jesus. Which is also interesting because, obviously, the prosecutor had to go for the cleanest, clearest, most arguable theory. I also am wondering, though, with his history of tragedies happening when he's being questioned about his evil doing, was there a bonus in it that if he wasn't caught, that he would look like a grieving husband who lost his wife and maybe they wouldn't file charges against him or maybe he could somehow wiggle out of what he had been caught doing at the learning exchange? Maybe. I just feel like it wasn't like thinking that far in advance on anything. Yeah. So I feel like that's good. that's nice to give him that credit. But yeah, I don't know either. Especially because I think that she started getting sick probably before he was even fired. So yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So the defense argued that the only thing that was known for sure was that Julie died after ingesting ethylene glycol. That's it. No one could say definitively that Julie didn't ingest it herself. No one saw James putting antifreeze into Gatorade bottles. No bottle was found with traces of antifreeze in them. Neither was any antifreeze found in their duplex or on their property or in their trash anywhere. So the defense attorney is pretty much like, this guy is a liar and he's not a great person, but everybody said he loved his wife and he did and he's not a murderer. They also decided to go with the she did it to herself thing by suggesting she was depressed about her kidney condition and her inability to have a healthy pregnancy. So she killed herself to not be a burden to her loved ones. Wow. I would be furious if I was her friend or family member at that argument. I would be Furious. The defense, whenever they say like, yeah, they're a shitty person, but they're not a murderer, you always know they're guilty. <laughs> always. Yeah. Like we we've had that before. That. Yeah. yeah. The defense is like, yeah, they were cheating on their wife and they were embezzling and they were doing all this other stuff. But you know where they crossed the line? They would never cross the line into murder. Like, AKA really? they were just good at hiding the evidence. Yeah. Expert medical witnesses pretty much debunked that. So they said... There's no way somebody would kill themselves this way because it takes forever to actually die from antifreeze poisoning, especially if she was low dosing herself for so long. And it's just tremendously disorienting and painful as well as inefficient. And it doesn't make any sense at all for a medical professional to do this to themselves. They also presented evidence that there were zero searches for suicide or poisoning oneself or even antifreeze anywhere on both of Julie's computers in direct contrast to what was found on James's. In what was described as an incredibly moving closing statement, prosecutor Nat Yeager posted both James and Julie's internet searches on these huge poster boards. And 
it's like, I think the visual aid was very helpful to see that while James was researching poisons to kill his wife, Julie was researching how to get better and realize her dream of having a child. So one was researching how to end a life while the other was desperately trying to bring one into the world. Yeah, that's really moving. So Laura Bricker wrote about it. The most powerful part of Jaeger's closing argument came at the end when Jaeger talked about James' decision to move back to Missouri after his wife's death. Jaeger told the jury about the things James left behind. Photos of each item were displayed on a large monitor at the front of the courtroom as he spoke. He left behind Julie's wedding dress. He left their wedding photo album, a new big screen TV, an expensive sleigh bed, tools, even Julie's wedding ring. Jaeger slowly walked back toward the prosecution table, leaving the photo of the ring up on the monitor. He left behind everything. He then picked up the Sony laptop, the laptop on which James had searched for ways to kill Julie, the laptop on which he had received an email from Julie with questions for her doctor, the laptop that his mother tried to keep away from the police. He left it all behind, but not that Sony Vio. Jaeger told the jury as he carried the laptop across the courtroom and laid it down in front of them. Middlesex District Attorney Jerry Leone sat in the audience during the closing arguments and later called Jaeger's closings one of the most outstanding closing arguments he'd ever seen. The use of Julie Keown's emails, her own words, really gave the sense that Julie was speaking to the jury. So the jury deliberated for a day and a half before delivering a... Guilty verdict. Yes, you got it! At sentencing, Judge Sandra Hamlin said the way in which this defendant secretly and methodically planned and carried out the poisoning of his wife and allowed her to suffer so horribly and die such a slow and painful death makes this court feel that I'm truly in the presence of an evil person. And then she L-whopped his ass. Thank God. Because he is a danger to society. He is. Anybody could run afoul of him if they're in the way of something he wants. So yeah, life without the possibility of parole. On September 18th, 2008, Julie was honored in a Boston area memorial called the Garden of Peace, devoted to those who have lost their lives to homicide. And we, Andrea, are making a donation to continue the upkeep and maintenance of that memorial. Yay. That same year, Prosecutor Nat Yeager was named Lawyer of the Year by Massachusetts Lawyer Weekly for his work on Julie's case. James has unsuccessfully appealed and tried to get out of prison, and they said, no, thank you. So he remains behind bars in a prison in Shirley, Massachusetts. The prison sits, ironically, on Harvard Avenue. Julie's dad, Jack, saw the prison where his former son-in-law will spend the rest of his life and said, well, I guess James finally made it to Harvard after all. Wow. Snap, snap, snap. I know that we cannot ascribe meaning to these actions in any way that would make sense to you and I. Another theory about this is that maybe he's kind of like a family annihilator where Think about like John List, like how he was out of work for a really long time and he was pretending to go to work and he was pretending like everything was fine and their finances were in the dumper. And he wasn't having an affair. He didn't have any other ulterior motives. He actually wasn't even getting an insurance policy. It was 
just like the, my life is collapsing and I can't take you with me. Like I have to destroy everybody. Nobody can find out. And so some people think that maybe that was a part of it as well, because Julie apparently idolized him. She loved him. She looked up to him. She thought he was the greatest man in the entire world. And some people wondered because they just really couldn't shake the feeling that he had truly loved her. I mean, and that's also probably their loved ones not understanding how they also were so taken in that they were like, I wonder if he did it because all of this was about to be revealed and he'd have to tell her, we can't have a baby. We can't afford to have a baby. And I could be going to jail for what he did embezzling. Was there any like exact moment of when he started doing these cons or does it seem like he could have been doing it his whole life? He could have been doing it his whole life. They believe that he may have embezzled from other companies he worked for. And there's no evidence, I believe, that he ever worked for ESPN. So we don't know what he was doing in that time that he told everyone he was working for ESPN. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like he's just always been... I think that definitely is a really valid theory. Yeah. And if it like provides any sort of emotional relief for her loved ones, then I think that that's what's most important, you know? Yeah. But he's sick. I mean, he's a sick man. He's never admitted to what he's done. He vociferously says he's innocent and this is all wrong. And he's never said why he would do any of these things. Yeah. I don't think he ever will. In conclusion, don't trust anyone when they tell you that they get into Harvard. Because the really snobby people who actually went to Harvard or get into Harvard say, oh, I went to school in Cambridge. (laughs) That's how you know they really went to Harvard. That's so true. That's so true. Also, if you want to get on a bunch of people's bad side real quick, that's poisoning your cat with uh, antifreeze is definitely the way to go, you sick Man, you sick man. Yes. I mean, I think if watching true crime documentaries have taught us anything, don't F with cats. The cat people people who love them. Yes, (laughs) they will. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. So no one is forced to drink lemon lime Gatorade because it's the worst flavor. Yeah. I love you. (laughs) Love you too. Bye. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) 